You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning, everyone. I've been away for a few weeks, and I've missed being up here and preaching to you guys, so thank you for having me back. It's exciting. I'm also excited about this lectern. It's sleek and cool, isn't it? Uh, Better sermon results guaranteed. That's... (laughs) That's why we bought it, but definitely two to three times longer. So we're going to see about that. We're going to see. Okay. I think, uh, by the way, we we are in our great series in Daniel titled In the Lion's Den. Andrew Sloan uh, started it last week for us. This week we're in our second week of six weeks. And we've called it In the Lion's Den because famously in chapter six, Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. But also, if you're anything like me, sometimes just living in this world can feel like you're in the lion's den. So that's why we've titled it Daniel in the Lion's Den. And uh, anyway, I've got some slides. They might be coming up soon. Our computer is just booting up again. I think one of the hardest things uh, about being a kid, and you might, if you can remember that far back for some of us, if you remember, you'll probably relate to this too. One of the hardest things about being a kid, and one of the hardest things I'm figuring now on the other side of it being a parent is just trying to ask your kids to obey you even when they don't see the reason for it. They can't just fathom, why would you ask me to do this? Um, As as they get older, our kids, we're trying to engage them, trying to tell them the reasons we're making decisions and and trying to to take them on the journey of sort of discipline and all that kind of stuff. But Because sometimes there's nothing more frustrating than hearing, do what I've asked. Why? Because I said so. Do you remember that when you were a kid? Because I said so. It's sometimes no more frustrating thing to hear because I said so. But sometimes it's just got to be the case. Right? If you've got a two-year-old and they're wanting to reach for the boiling pan on the stove, they don't realise the consequences of their actions. You just, please, do what I say because I've said so. Or as they get older, why can't I stay up all night? Why can't I read what I want? Why can't I watch what I want? They just can't see the consequences on the other side, they're still young and often they don't have the capacity to understand or sometimes it's just not appropriate to explain everything to them. So sometimes I just have to say, please just trust me. Do what I say. Please just trust me. I wonder if you can relate to that as a parent or remember maybe when you're a kid parent saying it to you. I recently said this to one of my kids. Uh, I'll admit there was a bit of a level of frustration in the room and I just, I just remember saying, please just trust me. And I just felt God in his infinite wisdom and his desire for me to be more like Jesus, just in his kindness and grace and wisdom, just say to me, son, this is true for you too. As I said those words pretty loudly, please just trust me. I just felt God say, son, this is true for you too. Because you see, for all my years as a Christian, all my years of theological study, of working in a church, I still struggle to do just the simplest of things, to trust my Heavenly Father, particularly when I don't understand the reason for it, when it's a confusing situation, when I feel like God might be absent or distant. And I just think in those circumstances, my opinion would work better, thanks very much. My way is the way I'd like to go. See, I think one of the key differences here, there's a few, but one of the key differences is perspective. Our little ones just lack it, don't they? 
they lack perspective and they, they can't see all that we can and therefore that's our role for them to help them trust us as we lead them and guide them through the complexities of life. And it's the same for us and God. My perspective, it's just so small. It's so localized. And let's face it, often very self-concerned. But God's is complete. He sees all. He is, his perspective is eternal and all-encompassing. Therefore, we can trust him and his will for our lives, even when it seems like we can't. This relates just so powerfully to this new series we're diving into in the book of Daniel. Why? Because it's the major theme of the book. Check it out. This is the major theme of the book. Next slide. Thanks. In spite of present appearances, God is in control. The major theme of the book of Daniel. In spite of present appearances, God is in control. Now, before we go any further, I reckon it's helpful to ask the relevancy question. Why are we studying this book? Book of the Old Testament, part of the Bible many of us don't access very often. I've heard very keen Christians say, New Testament, love it, but the Old Testament is confusing. I find it difficult to read. I don't know how relevant it is to my daily life. So let's ask the relevancy question, because if we're honest, Daniel is pretty far removed from us in three ways. First one happened a long time ago, didn't it? 2,600 years ago. The events we're looking at today and in this, this series, is, we're gonna, Daniel's longer than the six chapters, but we're looking at the first half, chapters one through six, so over the next few weeks, six weeks. This happened about 500 and something BC, a long time ago. Secondly, Daniel, everything that's happening in this book, it's a very different culture. Ancient Israel, ancient Babylon, so different. Even from people living in modern-day Iraq, which was where Babylon was located, vastly different cultures. So we're removed by time and culture. We're also removed by salvation history. We look back on the incredible act of Christ's life, death, and resurrection on the cross. They looked forward to it. So we're pretty far removed from these folks who are in these stories. How can it be relevant to you and I today? We've got to ask that question, don't we? Well, in asking it, in seeking an answer for it, let me ask you. Have you ever felt that God is distant? Have you ever felt in your life that God has been distant? Have you ever felt that God has forgotten you? Have you ever felt tempted to believe that God and your faith are just irrelevant to the fast-paced and ever-changing culture you live and work in? Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt just outnumbered as a Christian? At the workplace, in your family or in your friendship group? You ever just felt outnumbered? Have you ever just struggled to live out the Christian life in this world? If you've answered yes to any of those questions, then this book is for you. Because these stories in the book of Daniel, they're here to teach us about God and how to worship him in a culture that does not, in a culture that is set up without him in mind. That's the culture Daniel finds himself in. That's the culture that we find ourselves in today. Because in spite of present appearances, God is in control. In spite of present appearances, God is in control. Now, let me, let me ask you to do something. Imagine that you're Daniel for a moment. We'll do a bit of context and background about Daniel in a minute. But just imagine you're Daniel, taken from your homeland, taken from everything you know, 
In spite of present appearances, God is in control. But, but we've been taken from our homeland. God is in control. But we're about to be killed by the king. We're going to look at that in chapter 2 today. God is in control. But me and my friends, we're about to be thrown into the fiery furnace or thrown into the lion's den. That's chapters 3 and 6. God is in control. Or let's bring it closer to home. But it looks like our religious freedom might be under threat. God is in control. It seems like people think Christianity couldn't be more irrelevant to their lives. God is in control. But, but people think we're the immoral ones for believing in and teaching the truths of the Bible. God is in control. Now, but you don't understand. This week, my barista gave me decaf instead of the full strength stuff. God is in control. You like that? I've used it before and I'll use it again. Here's one. We talk about persecution in this country. Please. People are actually being persecuted, actually losing their lives for the sake of the gospel. People are being killed around the world. What does this book have to say to them? God is in control, even when we don't feel like it, even when appearances look to be contrary. Again and again, we're going to see the truth of that statement shine through, and today is no exception. Now, a little bit of background and context. Daniel and his friends, they've been taken captive by one of the most powerful men to ever walk the face of the earth, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He totally destroys the kingdom of Israel, but before he burns it and raises it to the ground, he comes there 10 years earlier and takes 10,000 of the city's elites back to Babylon with him, back to the centre of the empire. Why? To indoctrinate them. Because when you've got an enormous empire, you need people to administer it for you. And so he takes the brightest, the smartest, the best-looking, it says, to Babylon to indoctrinate them, to teach them in the ways of Babylon so he can send them out to administer the things of Babylon. Daniel and his friends are brought to a strange part of the world, away from everything they know, different people, different food, different cultures, different gods. It seems like Babylon has defeated Israel. But more importantly, it seems like Marduk, which is sort of the, the primary deity, the primary god in Babylonian culture, it seems like Marduk has defeated Yahweh, the God of the Bible. I mean, it looks like that, right? Wouldn't you think that? If their nation beat you, well, their God must be more powerful. If he was more, if our God was more powerful, wouldn't he have stopped the defilement of the temple? Wouldn't he have stopped this mass kidnapping? Wouldn't he? See, here's the question of Daniel. Has God forgotten his people? Because they're no longer in the promised land. They're in Babylon. So therefore, he's forgotten us, right? Will he remember us while we're in another land? We're so far away. Yes, in spite of present appearances, God is in control. So, Chapter 2, our passage for today, is broken up into three scenes, like any good story. And scene one begins with a dream. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, powerful, mighty, just has one of those nights. I had one of those nights a bit before, so you can hear I'm a bit sick um, <clears throat> last night. Uh, um, this morning really is brought to you by a mixture of Sudafed Vicks and caffeine. <laughs> with a mix of adrenaline as well. So we're going to see what happens on this roller coaster ride this morning. So excuse me, my voice is a bit funny. But Nebuchadnezzar, he's had a fitful dream. 
a fitful sleep and he's had a bad dream, a dream that's troubled him early into his reign, probably second year, third year into his reign. He's having dreams that scare him, dreams he thinks might have something to do with his hold on power, with his grasp for the throne. Every leader thinks about how do I hold on to power? The most powerful man in the world at that time is reduced to a little child lost in the dark, trying to understand what has flashed before his eyes. Nebuchadnezzar, he's got everything in the world. Most likely he is top 20 most powerful men who've ever lived. Nebuchadnezzar's got everything he could ever want except peace. So he summons one of the wise, some of the wise men of the court to try and help him figure out what's going on and give him some peace. This would have been a pretty familiar scenario for the astrologers, enchanters, magicians. We'll call them wise men, though. This was their job, to try and discern dreams and omens and different things like that, visions, shooting stars and the like. But this is going to prove tough for them. This is going to take an almighty twist. They arrive and say, oh, king, live forever, all that kind of stuff. Tell us the dream so we can interpret it for you. But he won't. He says, I've firmly decided this is how it's going to play out. You're going to tell me the actual dream, then you're going to interpret it for me. If you don't, I'll tear you to pieces, make your houses into rubble. If you do, great rewards await you. Things have escalated pretty quickly, as can happen when a dictator's in a cranky mood. I think justifiably the wise men are taken aback by this request They stall for time and they ask, oh, tell us the dream so we can interpret it for you. Nebuchadnezzar sees through their stalling tactics. He's fed up and he restates the penalty. Tell me now. Now, some commentators think Nebuchadnezzar's actually forgotten the dream. He can't remember it. You ever had it? You wake up and you just... It's weird. Dreams are always weird, aren't they? And you're sort of grasping for the meaning. Has someone ever tried to tell you their dream? It's very frustrating. You were there, except you weren't you. And you, you were in your house, except it was more like an aquarium. And then, and then you, and you were there too, but you were kind of like a whale. And I mean, it's so frustrating. You're like, really? You just try and feign interest. I'm so interested. You're trying to remember, right? You're trying to remember what's happened. So maybe Nebuchadnezzar can't remember. He wakes up, but he knows it was significant. And he's trying to hold on to the meaning, but he can't remember. Maybe. Or maybe he doesn't trust his wise men. Maybe he's seen them interpret things like this before and just seen they've done a shonky job of it. Maybe he thinks they're counterfeits. I don't know. But we know he's dying for an honest answer, right? He really wants an accurate interpretation of his troubling dream. Either way, what the wise men realize, this is not within their ability to pull off. Verses 10 and 11, check it out. The astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. So here sets up the tension of the story. No one can do what the king asks. Or is there one that can? The wise men admit they can't do it. Nebuchadnezzar makes good on his threat. All wise men in Babylon are ordered to be executed. Now we haven't met Daniel yet, but now here he is, 13 verses in. He and his friends have graduated from the Babylonian sort of university. They've now graduated to be included among the wise men. And what do they get for it? Execution. 
Pretty rough. Through no fault of their own, they've been caught up in the intrigue of the royal court and they are to be put to death in scene one. Scene two focuses our attention on Daniel and his friends. The commander of the king's guard starts doing what the king asks for, starts rounding up the wise men. And Daniel, the Bible says, using wisdom and tact, we'll look at that in a second, speaks to the guard and says, oh, why this such a harsh decree? <laughs> why are we all going to die? And uh, the guard tells him. Then Daniel, using great courage, goes to the king and asks for more time so that Daniel can try and do something about it. I don't know what Daniel's thinking. What on earth makes him think he can help this situation? But the king agrees. Daniel goes away and gathers his friends together. Verse 18. He urged them, that's Daniel urged his friends, to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel immediately takes his situation to God. He is in no doubt who has the ability to save him and his friends from destruction. Now, don't get me wrong. We saw last week, we're going to see it in the rest of this book. Daniel is the epitome of biblical wisdom. Absolutely, he uses wisdom and tact. He uses his God-given smarts to get out of some pretty sticky situations. But he knows at this point he can turn to no one but God. He knows that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let me ask you this. Thank you, Pippi. He knows he must turn to God. Now, let me ask you this. How long does it take us before we come to the same realization as Daniel? How long does it take us before we realize, actually, God is my only hope? How many other people do you go to before God? Or or, or what's your immediate reaction when when you're hit with a crisis? Is it just panic stations? Is it, I'm just going to go through my call list, I'm just going to text everybody I know? I'm going to post it on social media. What is it? What's your first reaction? How many of us say, oh, well, we trust God? Absolutely, we trust God. But do our actions betray us? Do our habits and actions really tell the truth of that? Daniel knows God is his only hope, and he puts it into practice. Now, God in his infinite wisdom and kindness hears their prayer, and he answers. He answers their prayer in a vision in Daniel's sleep. Daniel gets up. He's overjoyed. But here's another thing we can learn. Before he goes to the king with the answer, immediate, that's what you do, right? I've got the solution. People don't have to die. He pauses and gives thanks to God. It's a beautiful little, almost like a psalm. It's really wonderful. Daniel stops and exercises gratefulness. What a wonderful example. Lord, turn our hearts towards this gratitude. I tell you what, I don't know what you think about prayer. I don't know what your practices of prayer are. Maybe you're very prayerful. Maybe you really struggle with prayer. I'm sure that's a lot of us. But let me say this. The more we pray, the more opportunities we have to thank God. The more we pray, the more we have opportunities to thank God for his provision. Daniel's psalm of praise, like a little prayer, it's a beautiful response to God. And As often is the case with songs in in, in books of the Bible, in there is distilled beautiful theological truths. And really hidden inside this uh, prayer 
are the two major themes of Daniel. The first one is that God is all-powerful, that he's the one who raises kings and deposes them. The second one is that Daniel, he may have lots of smarts, but actually it's God who has given him the wisdom to reveal this mystery. Scene three. After Daniel's prayer, he returns to the king, and the king asks him, oh, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? I love this, verses 27 and 28. Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he's asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Love this. Daniel just deflects, you see it? The attention to God. He gives him the glory. Where does this wisdom come from? Not from me, but from the God in heaven. Now let's turn our attention to the dream. We didn't read it. It's quite a long passage for today, so we're going to look at it here now. Nebuchadnezzar dreamt of the future of what is to come, and here's the dream. He dreams of an enormous statue, huge, awesome, beautiful, intimidating, and it's made up of different materials. The head is gold, the chest and arms silver, the belly and thighs bronze, and the legs and feet sort of a mixture of iron and clay. Kind of a strange sight, right, for us modern hearers, a strange thing to think about. Not totally unusual for back then. In fact, lots of rulers erected things like this in their honour. Maybe this was an ambition of Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to see that particularly next week in chapter 3. Now, something else happens in the dream. So we've got this, he dreamt of this enormous statue with different materials. Now, something else happens in the dream. Another character comes in, and it's a rock. But it's odd. This rock, we, we are told, it's not cut out from human hands. Humans have nothing to do with it. Now, this rock comes in against the statue and smashes into the legs, the iron and clay part. And so this enormous edifice then crashes into the ground, and as it does, does so, it disintegrates into dust. This great statue now becomes like chaff and is blown away by the wind. What once was standing amazingly impressive is now gone. And this rock is now front and centre of our attention. It grows and becomes a mountain and fills the whole earth. That's the dream. What does it mean? It means this. In spite of present appearances, God is in control. How? Bear with me. The different metals and elements represent different kingdoms. Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, you are that head of gold. He would love to hear that. You are that head of gold. Most likely the whole kingdom of Babylon is the head of gold. And the rest of the parts of the body are sort of the other kingdoms that are to come after him. Now, most scholars agree it represents probably Babylon and then sort of the kingdoms of Persia, Greece, and Rome. But I don't want to spend much time here because there's lots of debate in it. And I'm sure you'd like that to go for the next hour and a half to cancel your lunch plans. Yeah, no? Okay. That's actually not what's important. The detail of this is not what's really important. Two things are, what are they? What happens to the statue? And what is that rock? What happens to the statue? Well, we know. Falls to the ground, becomes dust, and is blown away. Well, what's the rock? Daniel tells us in verses 44 and 45. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms 
and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. What's important about the rock? It isn't made by human hands. It is independent of us. And it destroys what seems to be unshakable, reducing it to dust. It, of course, represents the king. The statue represents all the kingdoms of this world. The rock represents the kingdom of God, establishing that cannot be destroyed and will endure forever. But just imagine for a second what it must have been like for Daniel to receive this revelation and tell it to the king of Babylon. Just picture that for a moment. Picture, who's he telling it to? The most powerful man in the world, in the most lavish and powerful kingdom maybe the world's seen up to this point. And what's he actually saying? With Daniel, remember, taken from his homeland, forced to learn the ways of the pagan empire, serve a king who can, on a whim, sentence him to death. And what's Daniel saying to him? Your kingdom will have an end. And your power is a borrowed power from the God of gods, the Lord Almighty. That's some pretty gutsy things to say, don't you reckon? I wonder if he's thinking, I'm going to lose my head for this. He actually says it in his beautiful song, Psalm, in verse 21. He says this, he says, He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings, speaking of God, and raises up others. What an encouragement for Daniel to hear in exile, that the kingdom he is working for will have an end, and the one he truly belongs to, it will never end. It will endure forever. And what an encouragement for us. See, this is the glimpse behind the curtain that we need, isn't it? It is the, the, the truth of the ultimate reality behind this one. Kingdoms will fall, kings and rulers will come and go, but God remains forever. Pip and I had the privilege of travelling to Rome quite a few years ago now, pre-kids, and what a city, a magical city. The culture, the food, the uh, Colosseum, all these amazing things. And I remember walking down Palatine Hill. Uh, If you've been there, you might know what it is. It's right next to the Colosseum, and it used to be this incredible marketplace. All the Romans used to gather there. It used to be enormous temples to different gods and beautiful fountains and all that kind of stuff. Today... Man, you've got to use your imagination to figure out what it was like. The Colosseum's very intact. You don't really have to use it there. But in this particular Palatine Hill, which was the glory of Rome, you're there with an audio guide and this, this sort of number seven, you press seven. This was the temple to Adam. You're like, really? It's a pile of stones. What was so impressive is now a stack of rocks. Imagine what it would have been like for the early Christians in the shadow of the great Roman Empire. Imagine when they said, stop preaching the gospel or we will put you in chains. We will throw you into that Colosseum and you'll be fed to lions. Imagine what it would have been like thinking our little movement, how can it face up to the glories of Rome? And now what is it? A stack of rocks. And what about the movement they help birth? that has exceeded all expectations except God's, of course. It has exploded right around the world, billions of followers of Jesus. But let's bring it closer to home. It's got a lot of application for us here. 
How relevant is this, particularly in light of last week's election? Right? As followers of Jesus, you and I are part of a kingdom that has no end, and every other leader and party will come and go. Now, this doesn't mean that we disengage from politics. could mean the exact opposite. We are free. I think, actually, we should be as informed as possible and seek the good of our country while faithfully living out our calling, but it does change our perspective, doesn't it? Think about it. If the party you voted for didn't win, remember that the kingdom you ultimately belong to can never lose. And if the party you voted for did win, remember, it won't last forever, and its authority is a borrowed authority from the true and living God. I tell you what, you know what, this may not be an issue for you. These current circumstances may not be causing you to doubt that God is in control, because that's the issue we're talking about, isn't it? This is Daniel's issue. It's his struggle. Everything he saw looked as if God had forgotten him and his people, right? How are you tempted to doubt that God is in control? What is it for you? Might not be politics, governments, elections. Might not be Twitter-happy presidents, trade wars, resigning prime ministers, franking credits. May not be it for you. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Might just simply be your work. How much of our lives are spent there? It might just be your work. There are so many ways our work can become just all that we can see. It can sometimes just take our vision so much that it has the potential to blot out the light of God. Or at the very least, it can fill our vision so much that our faith can just seem so disconnected from it. It could be a problem having to do with work. It could be a, a, a difficult boss, a difficult work colleague, not having enough work, having too much, having to reach just difficult sales targets, very difficult customers or clients. What is it that's just filling your vision and, and, and helping you to doubt that God is in control. It might be just a difficult relationship. Gosh, that can be really draining, can't it? Do you doubt that God can work a miracle in whatever relationship it is? It might be your marriage. It might be your relationship with your kids. It might be a relationship that is going on, something to do with your children. It might be a family member. It might be a friend. It might be a secret sin somebody that you've just successfully hidden for a long time, but you're struggling with hiding it now and you can't seem to shake it? Are you able to step into the light and let God deal with your sin? Let me ask you, what is filling your mind right now? It may not be the word of God. It may not be this sermon at all. What is filling your vision and just tempting you to doubt that God is in control, that he cares for you? What is tempting you to believe that, I don't know if he really cares. What is it? You see, God is in control. But sometimes hearing that, just like one of those, yeah, yeah, 
Sometimes hearing it just fails to cut through the surface of our lives. I get that. Well, here is the greatest encouragement of all, I think, in this passage. Let's try and get this to descend into our hearts. When the wise men are whining to Nebuchadnezzar, do you remember? Back in verses 10 and 11, they were, oh, you've asked us to do a very unreasonable thing. No one's ever asked something like this before. No one can do it. Only the gods could, and they do not live among humans. How wrong they were. You see, our God, the true and living, the only God, is not a distant God. He does live amongst us. It has been his desire to be with us, to be involved in our lives from the very beginning. And if you are doubting that, all you need to do is look to Jesus. Talk about living amongst us. He became one of us. How much more could he show his desire to be with us, his concern for us, his love for us, any more than becoming one of us? Talk about solidarity. So when you are tempted to believe that God is distant, when your vision is just filled with work, it's all you can see, when your relationship just seems too difficult to repair, when your sin just seems too much to overcome, know that you cannot overcome it on your own. Know that Jesus has overcome it for you. You see, not only did he become one of us in the incarnation, but he lived the perfect life. He died the death we deserved. He rose again from the dead, giving us his righteousness so that we could be filled. Friends, you can't do it on your own. But Jesus has done it for you. And then with him, we can walk with him and face these things in our lives with true perspective. He truly is Emmanuel. He is God with us. So friend, if you are doubting the goodness of God, if you are doubting the power of Jesus Christ this morning, then I urge you to hear what I started with this morning, what I heard. Daughter, son, this applies to you too. Please trust me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that we can trust you. Your word says that we can. Many of our experiences say that we can. But the truth is that we struggle with it every day by what we face out in the world. We know that you want us to go out to be salt and light to shine the light of your kingdom, which will reign forever in this world. Sometimes we struggle. So, Lord, we need you. Remind us of the truth of the gospel, that you came to seek and to save the lost. You came to rescue us, to bring us back to yourself. And may that be just the foundation of how we live every day. From that place, Lord, I ask that you would give us strength and that you would infuse us, you would pour your Holy Spirit into our hearts so that we could know this more than just intellectually. We'll give you great thanks for your word and for your people. And we ask this church might be a wonderful place where we learn how to do this together in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen.